author and activist Terry Tempest Williams is best known for her connection to the people and the landscapes of her native Utah. Her writing explores the region's human and natural histories and argues passionately for the preservation of its threatened ecosystems and species. Her writing weaves together themes of family, of spirituality, and of nature. But in the wake of 9-11, this daughter of the American Southwest felt compelled to actually leave her home and travel abroad in search of solace. Terry Tempest William joins us today to talk about the book that came out of that personal adventure called Finding Beauty in a Broken World. Terry, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much, Rick. How did 9-11 hit you as a, as a writer and as a, as a seeker, and, and, and why were you inspired to travel after 9-11? It was a turning point for me, as I'm sure it's a marked moment for all Americans. I happened to be in Washington, D.C. on 9-11, on September 11th. I think if I had been home in Castle Valley, Utah, I wouldn't have known what had happened. I probably would have noticed there were no contrail signs in the sky, no planes. But I was at the Corcoran Gallery with other photographers and writers. We were about to begin a press conference with an exhibit called In Response to Place when we were told by a security guard that the Twin Towers had been bombed and that the Pentagon had been hit and the White House looked to be next. We were right across from the White House. He said, run. None of us moved. He came back five minutes later and said, run. We ran outside. We saw the black plume coming up from the Pentagon. We saw people running across the White House lawn. The next thing I remember, seven of us were inside a cab. He turned around in total gridlock and said, and just where would you like to go? <laughs> just where would you, and what did you, what did you think? I want to get out of here. You know, I stayed. And I happened to be on book tour at that time with a book called Red, Passion and Patience in the Desert. I had the choice of returning to Utah. I, I saw it as an opportunity to really listen to what was going on in America. And as you remember, it was changing day by day. Right. I heard myself saying, speaking out, um, when I was hearing Congress and senators alike saying, it's not a matter of if we're going to drill in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, but when. I heard myself saying, there are many forms of terrorism, and environmental degradation is one of those. I think the thing that scared me, Rick, is that after a year of really defending what I called the open space of democracy and public lands, that there was more to be talked about than just oil and gas and war. So this has been a, sort of a whiplash for me. We're talking about uh, the attacks on New York City and the Pentagon, and you're thinking right. uh, environmental challenges and sort of uh, terrorism to our environment. Uh, talk a little more about because that. Because it was tied to oil and gas, because it was tied to Iraq and the potential of war, because already members of Congress were saying, we need oil and we right. need to drill in wild yeah. areas. And you could see the rhetoric change that if you spoke against that, then suddenly you were not a patriot. And that was very frightening to me as a writer who's been very concerned with free speech coming out of Utah, where free speech uh, is not always a given. I was sensitive to that. But what was frightening to me is after a year of this, I heard my own rhetoric as brittle as those that I was opposing. I had lost my sense of poetry, and polemics are not persuasive. I was in Maine. You talk about travel. I was on the coast. It was high tide. I stood on the edge of this continent, and I remember saying prayers, give me one wild word, and I promise I will follow. And I stood there for a long time, and the word that came into my heart was mosaic. 
And I thought, that is not the word I was looking for. You know, Mm. now am I relegated to a life of breaking my mother's dishes and making bad picture frames? But I took that seriously. And what I thought was a craft, I learned was an art, the art of assemblage, of taking that which is broken and creating something whole, something beautiful. So you went to Italy. I did go to Italy. I went to Ravenna. I enrolled in a school of mosaic. Again, my ignorance, I thought it was a craft course. I didn't realize this was a highly sophisticated art class with conservators and artists from all over the world. I was quickly identified as a dunce, and Luciana set me in the corner with a hammer and a hardy, and (laughs) for three weeks, I was relegated to breaking stone. Terry Tempest Williams, the great writer, (laughs) author of Finding Beauty in a Broken World, When Women Were Birds, Refuge, and Unnatural History of Family in Place, in the corner wearing a dunce hat, breaking (laughs) stones for mosaics in Ravenna. Whoa, surrounded by... She wouldn't let me touch them. What a, what a great way. experience for you to have that sort of a role for a little while, uh, surrounded it by all that so, great art and history. It was so great to get out of my head and to just make tessera, square cubes of marble and stone for three weeks and hand them to the conservators and artists who were restoring these great mm. mosaics in Ravenna. If you've been there, and I know you have, you know, they're jewel boxes, right? Oh, From they're the jewel Byzantine I was going to ask, these are churches that go way back to the time when Jesus didn't wear a beard. I mean, that was late Roman (laughs) Empire. Jesus only got his beard in the Middle Ages. And then you go into these churches and you see these sublime, sumptuous works of art made from little broken chips of stone and and colored glass and so on. And there you were as a rank beginner, surrounded by all that wonder and history. Talk on. Tell me more. What happened? What did you learn from the mosaic experience? It was life-changing. You know, there were rules to mosaic. If you want to create a horizontal line, you stack, you line tessera vertically. If you want to create a vertical line, you place tessera horizontally. The first and last rule of mosaic is light. I love one of the rules is there is perfection and imperfection. And I understand you, you angle the, the little stones at different angles so the light bounces off them in a lively way. Is that part of it? Exactly. And this, you know, as you mentioned, we're in churches and these specks of gold would create light in, in very dark places. Um, mm. Not just to celebrate God and spirit, but to literally bring forth light. In a dark world, just, to bring forth light. It's Exactly. And then this notion of imperfection. I was talking with a mosaic maker in a Muslim society, and they hmm. intentionally made their mosaics imperfect as a respect for God, who only God is perfect. And it's just a, a beautiful sort of notion and a, a humble approach to God. Isn't it? Beautiful. Now, did, were you, Terry, did you go into the the great churches there that go back 1,500 years, and were you inspired by the mosaics that you saw? What was that like for you? I think I spent most of my time in Ravenna on my back, literally just staring up, not at stars, but at those mosaic ceilings that told stories where you'd see Apollo, the sun god, who then was transformed into the son of God. You could see the whole history of Christianity in stone, I absolutely fell in love with them. And you're, you're such a, a Utah tree hugger, and your whole world is <laughs> prairie dogs and, and beautiful birds and Great Salt Lake. So I can see you having that kind of passion for nature, but then you have that same passion, and you're laying on your back looking at mosaics in Ravenna, Italy, marveling at culture 
Rick, I had my binoculars. I oh. could bird watch those ceilings. <laughs> you can you bird know, watch, were, exactly. There are the actual birds. There were birds. doves. There were ibises, you know, blackbirds. I mean, it's a naturalist delight. Plants, palms. I was in heaven. In fact, my husband really was afraid that he had lost me forever. As I said, it was it was like being, you know, encased in a jewel box of, of time and history. I just loved it. And I loved my teacher. She was terrifying. In the end, she did let me create a mosaic on the premise that <laughs> there is perfection and imperfection, and mine was more than imperfect. It now hangs proudly in our bathroom, and every oh, time someone goes into our bathroom, you hear them laughing, and you <laughs> know why. You know, I, I've got in my bathroom, actually it wasn't my bathroom, now it's in my office, <laughs> I've got a little um, a fresco that I made, also in Italy. Really? And it's just a very crude fresco, but I got to do it myself, just like you did it yourself, and... And doesn't it make you appreciate the process? I love knowing the process, having gotten my fingers dirty with it. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Terry Tempest-Williams, and she's well-known for her beautiful books, Finding Beauty in a Broken World, Refuge, an Unnatural History of Family and Place, her latest book, When Women Were Birds. We're talking specifically now about Terry's uh, sharing her experience after 9-11 in her book, Finding Beauty in a Broken World, and the... um, time to have introspection and and look at the world in a new way and figure out what does it all mean inspired Terry to travel. She went to Italy, to Ravenna, to make mosaics. And Terry, you also went to Rwanda, and you talk about that in the book, too. Tell us about Rwanda, of all places. Why did you go there, and and how did that relate to your search during this period? I did not want to go to Rwanda. My brother had just passed away. Um, Our family is all too familiar with death from cancer, um, a friend of mine, Lily Ye, who is a mosaicist out of Philadelphia, we had met, and she helped to create the Village of Arts and Humanity in Philly. And uh, she was going to Rwanda, and she was creating a team. Long story shorter, she had been to an arts conference. She had heard a man from Rwanda Red Cross talk about the Rwandan genocide, 1994, in a matter of three months Almost a million Tutsis and moderate Hutus had been murdered by neighbors by hand, machetes, hoes, etc. She was so taken by it that she went up and, and basically said, four words, how can I help? He said, come to Rwanda and you will know what to do. She went to Rwanda. She went into the village of genocide survivors, largely women, who had lost everything and everyone. She listened. And what she heard to her horror is that the bones of their beloved, their children, were held in cloth behind their beds, behind trees, dug in the most rudimentary fashion so that they could cling to those bones. They had not had a proper burial. Together, they created a design of a memorial where they could bury the bones of their beloved in a respectful, dignified manner. Lily said, I will come back with a team. She needed a scribe. She asked if I would come. I said no. She never took her eyes off of me. I realized my spiritual growth was dependent on my saying yes, and I heard myself say those words. And it was true, Rick. What I learned is that fighting beauty in a broken world is creating beauty in the world we find. Um, I can hardly talk about it. Finding beauty in a broken world is creating beauty in the world we find. Yes. And what I could never have understood is that in a place like Rwanda, where every square inch of that landscape has been bled on and bled over, that beauty is not optional. But I saw the women's eyes, death eyes, eyes turned inward, completely 
light up when their children began painting their homes, when they began making mosaics on this beautiful memorial that would house Mm. their families who had died. What I saw is that beauty is not optional, but a strategy for survival. I could never have known, Rick, that in that question, give me one wild word, and the word that came to me was mosaic, that three years later I would find myself literally making mosaics in a genocide memorial out of the broken shards of war, literally the rubble of war. It changed my life, you know. I, I had no idea, and every single day I am mindful of, of the sorrow and the joy, the resiliency of the human spirit that people hold. You know, people are not inclined. It's not a natural inclination for, for us to look and experience the dark side of humanity by, by going there. Would you recommend that people go to places like the Rwandas of this world? I mean, you don't have to go to Rwanda, but there's lots of opportunities that way, aren't there, that, that are lost opportunities? The thing that struck me is, you know, we have everything in this country. We have so much. We're so privileged. And yet there's so much discontent. People are not Mm -hmm. happy. And so you see this mad, consumptive, reactive quality. What I saw in Rwanda over and over again, and I've been back many times, is that there is a joy that is encased in the sorrow, but there is a meaningfulness. There is a capacity to share, as you say, a capacity to empathize, a capacity to work together, and Rwanda is now working toward restoration and reconciliation. And I have so much respect for that. I think the happiest times I have had in my life have been in Rwanda, working together, Mm. um, not with Hutus and Tutsis, but Rwandans. And again, it's finding meaning in our lives, that idea that taking that which is broken and creating something whole together. Terry, the sadness for me is that The average person in our society just changes the channel and and watches more TV. I mean, life goes right by you. If you don't get on a plane or get in a canoe or put on some shoes and go out there and embrace the world, find beauty in a broken world, make beauty in the world you're given. And it doesn't have to be in Rwanda. No, it it, it doesn't. As you say, you're in Washington, (laughs) I'm in Utah. Both of us are deeply committed to these places and... uh, I think that's what real advocacy and communitarianism is, don't you? Advocacy. Now, there's a difference between charity and advocacy, isn't there? Have you thought much about that? How interesting. How so? I just think charity is is almost like, okay, i got to do some charity. Advocacy is empathizing with people, understanding their baggage, to go there and to walk with them, to talk with them, to understand what have their struggles been. And you you go to Rwanda... You have empathy. You understand their baggage. America's really good at knowing what 9-11 baggage is, but other people have baggage that's just as powerful. Imagine the baggage in Rwanda. That's what undid me. I remember we were able to go into the Gachacha courts where perpetrators, people who had murdered family members, had to face those members who of the family survived oh. and, and tell them what had happened, ask for their forgiveness. And in one instance... I heard a woman say to a man who had murdered her husband and all of her children, she stood before him and she said, I know who you are. I saw what you did. You murdered my husband and children. I now live alone. And then she said, 
But I now forgive you, and I will make you my son, and I would ask that you come to live with me, and we will take care of each other. Finding beauty in a broken world, gaining power and strength from from brokenness. That's right, and it's not to romanticize poverty, certainly, Mm -hmm. or war, but I think it's perspective. And what I realized in Rwanda with this, you know, I don't even have the language, the the horrors that took place there. What I realized is that on one hand, angels, on the other hand, demons, good, evil, how do we bring our hands together in prayer? And that if a human being is capable of this kind of atrocity, then I too am capable of that. And if a human being is capable of this kind of forgiveness, then I too am capable of that. And I think it brought me into a a much deeper sense of my own humanity. And perhaps that's the gift of travel. Terry Tempest-Williams, author of Finding Beauty in a Broken World, author of When Women Were Birds and Refuge, an Unnatural History of Family and Place. Thank you so much for what you do and for sharing it with us today on this show. And thank you, Rick, for your perceptions and how you allow us to travel with grace. Let's talk again soon. Thank you. Rick Steves teaches smart European travel. At ricksteves.com, you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, free audio tours of Europe's top sites, a monthly travel newsletter, and a world of information to help you turn your European travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. To gear up for your next European adventure, begin your trip at ricksteves.com.